the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. We begin on this installment with a lot of ground, starting with the announcement that was made that rather than the debate that should have taken place tomorrow and Thursday night in Miami, we're going to have competing town halls. Trump is going to be on NBC. Biden's going to be on ABC. Is that a sufficient replacement for the debate that should have happened per President Trump uh, testing negative again for covid such that he satisfies NBC NBC's medical requirement that they'll do this town hall? But the nonpartisan presidential commission couldn't have accommodated the town hall style debate on the same night in the same place. Nonsense. Surreal affront. And uh, there should be a reckoning for this commission after the fact, regardless of who wins. But I know it won't will only happen if Trump does. This is just outrageous. As Richard Haas, the council, the president, uh, Council on Foreign Relations, observed, ideally, those inclined to support one candidate will watch the other and learn something. Now, most Americans will likely view their preferred candidate. We already have this. It's called cable TV. Those inclined to support one candidate would watch the other and learn something in the context of them being side by side, that give and take that you need. The stand and deliver against your political opponent rather than existing in silos like, as Richard Haas, I think, generally properly points out, is called cable TV every day, 24 hours a day. For example, it would be interesting to have Trump and Joe Biden have this moment on a debate stage where they could go back and forth rather than just Joe Biden having this moment when he's otherwise getting softballs from the press, but he can't even hit those on the question of a majority of Americans believing they're better off now than they were four years ago, according to a Gallup survey, this sort of below the fold polling that the cable news networks, with the exception of Fox, aren't just discussing. And most uh, certainly of the D.C. press corps, other D.C. press corps outlets, outlets are not, but suggest something bubbling below the surface that may be belied by so much of the polling that is accentuated by those same outlets. Uh, Joe Biden, in response to that. Gallup reported last week, 56 percent of Americans said that they were better off today than they were four years ago, would have been under the Obama Biden administration. So why should people who feel that they are better off today under the Trump administration vote for you? Well, if they think that, they probably shouldn't. Fifty six percent of Americans, those 56 percent of you think you're better off than you were four years ago. Joe Biden just told you not to vote for that. Vote for him there. I rest my case. Thank you very much. Have a good evening. How about that moment on a debate stage and those sorts of moments that are possible on a debate stage that are not possible in silo town halls? Uh, I know we still have the, the final debate October 22nd in Nashville. But the debate, both camps agreed to three debates. They agreed to the format. They agreed to the president, nonpartisan, blah, 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 presidential commission. And uh, unilaterally, the presidential commission essentially canceled the second debate without cause. 
that won't get reported either. It's a shame. Here's something else that could be discussed on the debate stage together. Maybe we'll be on the 22nd. Perhaps it will be a moot point. We'll see. Not just the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation hearing going on. By the way, after the break, we'll get to that with John Malcolm from the Heritage Foundation, day one at least. But also uh, this meltdown that Nancy Pelosi had with the normally accommodating Wolf Blitzer on CNN over her intransigence on a deal for COVID relief. You know, they're $400 billion apart. $1.8 trillion is what President Trump put on the table. And she wants more. She wants the state bailouts that he of of mismanaged states that have nothing to do with covid. And he said no. And she has pressure coming from inside her own caucus, the left of her caucus, like her California seatmate, uh, Ro Khanna, saying, take the deal. Don't make the perfect the enemy of the good. Well, she's having none of it. And uh, wouldn't that be something interesting to discuss on a debate stage between the two candidates in real time? What is your position, Joe Biden? Is this a good enough deal? Do you want to get checks in people's hands? Do you want this relief to be provided? And again, this is sort of secondary to whether I think the relief should be provided or not. But that could be part of the discussion as well. It seems like both parties are in agreement that the relief should be provided rather than really in terms of transfer payments and government spending rather than in terms of tax relief, which is the direction I would go. But still, there's a difference within that agreement, and the difference is 1.8 and take the deal. I'm not going to do the state bailout piece or sit on it and let Americans who are in a precarious economic position right now have their uh, anxiety heightened, to say the least, as well as their financial burdens. This was what the back and forth was between Wolf Blitzer and Nancy Pelosi that led to this uh, Tense 90 seconds to close their dialogue. You We've evidently do that. not respect the chairman of the committees who I re- wrote these I respect, bills. I respect and I all wish of you. you would respect the knowledge that goes into getting uh, the, meeting the needs of the American people. But again, you've been on JAG defending the administration all this time with no knowledge of the difference between our two bills. And I thank you for giving me the opportunity to say that to you in person. All right. Madam Speaker, these are, these are incredibly difficult times right now. Uh, and we'll leave it on that note. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll leave it on the vote that you are not right on this, Wolf, and I hate to say that to you. But I feel confident about it, and I feel confident about my colleagues, and I feel confidence in my chairs. It's not about me. It's about millions of Americans who can't put food on the table, who can't pay the rent, and we represent trouble, them. And we represent them. Getting and by we represent these them. long food and lines we that we're seeing. Them. I know we you know are. Them. I'm, I'm just we saying. We represent them and we know them. As we, we say. We know them. We represent them. Don't let yes. the perfect be the enemy of the good, as they say It is here nowhere in near perfect. Madam Speaker. Always the case, but we're not even close to the good. All right. Let's see what happens, because every day is critically, critically important. Thanks so much Thank for joining us. Thank you for your us. sensitivity to our constituents' needs. I am sensitive to them because I see them on the street begging for food, begging for money. Madam Speaker, thank you Have so you much. Have you fed them? We feed them. We feed them. We'll continue this conversation down the road for sure. <laughs> we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. Uh, we feed them, says refrigerator ice cream lady. Uh-huh. Yeah, we feed them. I mean, uh, thank you for your concern, for our constituents. Don't try to out-sentimental me, Wolf Blitzer. This is my venue. Don't you demagogue me. Don't you try to virtue shame me over uh, providing uh, aid and comfort to those people who are struggling. That's what I do to the other side, and you're supposed to back my play. What do you think you're doing, Wolf? <laughs> it's a moment, particularly as you have Democrat senators 
in Pelosi style, demagoguing the pandemic issue and what the Senate should be doing, working on covid relief package rather than uh, entertaining confirmation hearing for Supreme Court justice nominee. Well, you got a deal on the table. Why can't you get Nancy Pelosi to take it, especially when uh, she is getting pressure, as I said, from her fellow travelers on the left? Here's another interesting topic for debate stage. That's real time. Doesn't have to opportunity to fade over the course of the next uh, week so it can be uh, dispatched as a legitimate debate topic and will have to be brought into the debate by Trump. You can be certain Joe Biden lied. Hunter Biden introduced his father to a top executive at a Ukrainian energy firm less than a year before the elder Biden pressured government officials in Ukraine into firing a prosecutor who was investigating the company. This email is obtained by the New York Post. The never-before-revealed meeting is mentioned in a message of appreciation that Vadim Posarsky, an advisor to the board of Burisma, reputed to be his, the number three executive there, sent to Hunter Biden April 17th of 2015, about a year after Hunter was on the board of Burisma at a reported salary of up to 50 grand a month. Dear Hunter, thank you for inviting me to D.C. and giving an opportunity to meet your father and spend some time together. It's really an honor and a pleasure. An earlier email from May of 2014 shows Pizarski also reported uh, also asking Hunter for quote advice on how you could use your influence unquote on the company's behalf. Uh, remember Joe Biden has said that he never spoke to his son about his overseas business dealings, his son's Hunter's overseas business dealings. But regardless, now you have a named individual who's a top executive at Burisma where Hunter Biden was already on dole saying, thanks for setting up the time for me to talk to your dad. And a year later, he pressures Ukraine to take out the prosecutor that was investigating Burisma. The, the amazing thing, too, I mean, Hunter Biden turning out to be the wiener of 2020, perhaps in more ways than one. This from a computer that was dropped off at a repair shop in Delaware in April of last year, according to the store's owner. Other material extracted from the computer includes a raunchy 12 minute video that appears to show Hunter smoking crack while engaged in a sex act with an unidentified woman, as well as numerous other sexually explicit images. The customer who brought in the water damaged Mac Pro book for repair never paid for the service or retrieved it or, or a hard drive on which its contents were stored. The store owner said repeatedly tried to contact the client. Shop owner could not positively identify the customer as Hunter Biden, but said the laptop bore a sticker from the Bo Biden Foundation, of course, named after his late brother. <laughs> it's just remarkable. And Joe Biden should have to account for that, not just with the softballs one and done questions from the D.C. press corps when he goes out to some, you know, voter mobilization parking lot, but on a debate stage against his political adversary. That's how it should work. And it is a disservice to the American people that the nonpartisan, in quotation marks, presidential debate commission has prevented that opportunity from being seized on by the public to make more informed choices, to watch these two candidates for as much time as one can side by side so you can really measure one against the other. Back with John Malcolm right after Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Day two of the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation hearing. Day one of her questioning by senators of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And, you know, we had to establish some baselines here in order to move forward, just to check some boxes because of all the controversies, you know, swirling around Amy Coney Barrett 
and whether or not she was a sexual predator. Since you became a legal adult, have you ever made unwanted requests for sexual favors or committed any verbal or physical harassment or assault of a sexual nature? No, Senator Hirono. Have you ever faced discipline or entered into a settlement related to this kind of conduct? No, Senator. Those questions are going to go right up there with Hank Johnson asking a uh, Navy admiral whether he thought that putting uh, too many Marines on the island of Guam would cause it to capsize. Cory Booker wanted to get into uh, the action, too. We wanted to make sure we didn't have a white supremacist as a nominee for the Supreme Court. I want to just ask you very simply, and I, I imagine you'll give me a very short, resolute answer. But you condemn white supremacy, correct? Yes. Thank you. He's so relieved, and so is T-Bone. So we've established that she's not a white supremacist and she's not a sexual predator. At least those are her statements on the record now. And I'm sure Cory Booker and Maisie Hirano will investigate further to see if that testimony is impeachable, You know, doing their due diligence, as, as the serious people they are. And then when uh, there were uh, a couple of senators that actually tried to get into uh, discussions of the law, it just didn't go great for him. Amy Klobuchar, who apparently fancies herself a future Supreme Court nominee, Klobuchar on these, the, this is their way of trying to get her to say that Roe is sacrosanct or get her to not say it and have the basis to provide cover for their no vote on her confirmation. Is Roe a super precedent? How would you define super precedent? I, I, I actually, I might have. Thought someday I'd be sitting in that chair. I'm not. I'm up here, so I'm asking okay, you. Okay, well, people so. use super precedent differently. Okay. The way that it's used in the scholarship and the way that I was using it in the article that you're reading from was to define cases that are so well settled that no political actors and no people seriously push for their overruling. And I'm answering a lot of questions about Roe, which I think indicates that Roe doesn't fall in that category. And scholars across the spectrum say that doesn't mean that Roe should be overruled, but descriptively it does mean that it's a case, not a case that everyone has accepted and doesn't call for its overruling. And uh, Barrett uh, also, uh, again, on the same topic, and also uh, more generally was her response to uh, DiFi, who relentlessly sought her opinion on Roe v. Wade. Well, Senator, if that question ever came before me, I would need to hear arguments from the litigants and read briefs and consult with my law clerks and talk to my colleagues and go through the opinion writing process. So, you know, if, if I give off-the-cuff answers, then I would be basically a legal pundit. And I don't think we want judges to be legal pundits. I think we want judges to approach cases thoughtfully and with an open mind. And this was getting, this was efforts, not just by DiFi, but others to get her. Does the president have the uh, right to unilaterally postpone a general election? Uh, Does the president have the right to prevent a peaceful transfer of power and so on and so forth? For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by John Malcolm, vice president for the Institute for Constitutional Government, director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good to be with you. Uh, You will not need a notepad for this interview, much like Amy (laughs) Coney Barrett did need one for day one. So uh, she uh, obviously knew what was coming, held up very well. This is just, you know, sort of the rushing of the Supreme Court going on right now, isn't it? Yeah, look, she held up beautifully, as even little snippets that you play demonstrate. She's 
has an exceptional mind and is highly qualified. And everybody knows that there isn't going to be a single Democrat in the Senate who is going to vote to confirm her, but that the odds are still extremely high that she will be confirmed because there will be at least 51 Republican senators who will vote to confirm her and Lisa Murkowski may as well. The only no vote for sure is Susan Collins, who said that she was going to vote no even before Amy Coney Barrett was announced as the nominee because she said that she just objected to this whole thing being done before the election. Uh, But Amy Coney Barrett has done exceptionally well, as I knew she would. She did exceptionally well under a contentious confirmation hearing in 2017. And although today will be another day of fun and games for her, I'm sure that she will hold up equally well. John, on the matter of recusals, because this has come up uh, time and again uh, during the uh, confirmation hearing to this point, the idea that uh, essentially Amy Coney Barrett should recuse herself from uh, cases that involve issues that Democrat senators don't want her to rule upon, uh, which is absurd. Uh, Is there any basis uh, on which Amy Coney Barrett should recuse herself from any of the cases that have been suggested by Democrat senators? Yeah, no, she's never ruled in an election law case. Again, it's somehow an assumption that she's not telling the truth when she says that the president didn't discuss the potential lawsuit involving the election. Uh, And if you look back at history, I mean, you mentioned Justice Breyer and Ginsburg in the Paula Jones the Clinton case. You could also look at, at Gorsuch and Kavanaugh in the Trump tax return case, and you could look at Harry Blackman and Warren Berger in the Nixon tapes case. And you know what? All of them voted against the president who had appointed them to the court. Uh, these people are life tenured for a reason, and that's because once they take that oath of office, they're supposed to set aside politics and rule according to the law and only the law. And unfortunately, most judges uh, and those justices take their job seriously. Well, right. And if all of those uh, senators Earl shibed and took a looking somewhat consequential, to borrow my favorite Dennis Millerism about these mediocre intellects, if they were actually listening to her answers when there were these moments fleeting as they were of substantive discussion, she mentioned a couple of times reliance interests as part of the calculus that a judge must make in cases. And so reliance interests as it pertains to Obamacare, reliance interests as it pertains to Obergefell, that's not dispositive of the issue, but it's a factor to consider. Yeah, no, that's exactly correct. So if somebody all of a sudden came up with an argument, you know, trying to peel back the Supreme Court's broad reach of the Commerce Clause and somehow argued that Social Security was unconstitutional, the Supreme Court would not take up that case. They would not overturn it. They would say there are just you know, so many people now have come to rely on Social Security. They might trim back on the Commerce Clause in other cases, but they would not overturn that precedent, that there are some things that are just become accepted. And that's what she referred to as super precedent. So Brown versus Board of Education, it's just not going to be overturned. Marbury versus Madison, judicial review of on legal questions, just not going to be overturned. People have come to rely on that for a stability in our society. And even if they were wrongly decided, I'm not saying they were, but if they were wrongly decided at the outset, too much water under the bridge. Well, and this is uh, a key point, because if, if I were questioning her, I'd say, well, it's, uh, this is exactly the problem with what the left wants to do with the courts is to make them super legislative bodies, because if we can get it through the courts, when we can't get it through the legislature, then you create reliance interests that make it almost impossible to undo. And this is not what the founders envisioned. This is not consistent with constitutional principle. And this is why you need originalists on the court. Well, I think that's right. And actually, the framers of the Constitution envisioned there'd be a lot more issues that would not be decided by courts. They would be decided by the people's elected representatives or by the people themselves, which is why the judiciary was referred to at the time as the least dangerous branch, the one that exercised judgment 
and not will. Will was exercised by the political branches of government, not by judges who were supposed to look at cases and controversies in retrospect to determine whether or not an action was either correct under the law or violated the Constitution. He is John Malcolm, VP of the Institute for Constitutional Government, director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. John, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Show.com. Welcome back to the show. Moving from uh, politics uh, infecting the high court, uh, the confirmation process to the high court, to politics infecting science. Uh, a snippet from our conversation with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford on last evening's program on uh, the great Barrington Declaration, which he is a charter member, along with Harvard's Kaldorf and Oxford's Gupta, and now thousands of other uh, public health professionals, medical doctors around the world who've signed on to the Declaration, and how the Declaration has been treated by big tech. Here's big tech again, uh, particularly Google. Uh, and uh, Dr. J offering his assessment and reaction to how this resolution has been manipulated in terms of its uh, uh, online presence by Google in particular. In the United States, I think it's it's sort of resolved itself. But I think now it's we're now the top hit on Google if you type in Great Barrington Declaration. But ar- around the world, that's still not true, I don't think. And I just can't understand it. I mean, this is... Uh, I think uh, a, a, it's, it's not a fringe movement. Thousands and thousands of, of public health people, doctors around the world have signed this declaration. Um, it's it's, it's an absolutely mainstream uh, call to return to a, a rational public health policy. So suppression of this seems like it's, I mean, to talk about anti-science, censorship itself is anti-science. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Alex Berezow, who's a Ph.D., Vice President of Scientific Communications at the American Council on Science and Health, uh, a Ph.D. microbiologist, I should add, and a columnist for USA Today. Alex, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Dan, for having me on. Uh, you've written about the politicization of science, uh, and you, you lament it, as does Bhattacharya. And you, uh, one of the examples you gave is uh, the Scientific American magazine uh, endorsing a presidential candidate. New England Journal of Medicine effectively did the same by saying Trump should go. And, um, you know, combine that with how Bhattacharya and his colleagues are being treated in um, the argument, the substantive argument, uh, experts uh, that are just as credentials as as anybody supporting lockdowns that they're making through this declaration. I've been frustrated by the tone of the media coverage for, for certain um, the, the dismissal of the Great Barrington Declaration is really particularly frustrating. Um, you know, these are people who know what they're doing. Uh, they're not reflexive conservatives or, or Trump supporters or something like that. They're smart, credentialed academics who have a different view on how we ought to implement public health policy. They ought to be taken very seriously, especially since uh, what we've been doing, this on-again, off-again you know, phase lockdown or phasing out of lockdown 
clearly isn't having the intended effect. We've got uh, still you know, tens of thousands of people getting infected every day. Europe, which had the disease under control, is now out of control. Uh, there, there are countries all over the world that, that are trying lockdowns that aren't working. And so it seems that maybe we ought to try something else. And uh, the Great Barrington Declaration, which basically says, look, why don't we protect the older people, the people who are sick, and let all the healthy people just go back to normal? It's not, it's not a bad idea. I've, I've, I've supported something similar months ago. Yeah, it, it just seems, uh, and this is uh, what I said with Bhattacharya yesterday as well, it just seems like we rushed into this thing, we're this far along on it now, we can't stop. Because otherwise that would be admitting we're wrong, and that would be admitting we're wrong to a catastrophic error in judgment. There's this, this thing that when people are caught being wrong, they don't like to admit being wrong, and they keep doubling down. And what really frustrates me is that we've changed the definition of, of what we wanted to do. Remember when we started saying flattening the curve, what we meant was preventing hospitals from being overwhelmed. We've done that. Our hospitals aren't being overwhelmed. But we now change the definition of flattening the curve to mean no more infections. Well, that's ridiculous. It, it, this is essentially a cold virus. It is a cold virus. It's a really bad cold. It'll kill you. Cold viruses don't typically kill you. This one can. But it's a cold virus. And those are impossible to stop. It's like influenza. They're, it's impossible to stop. We know it's coming every year. And despite it, it, in, the flu infects, you know, maybe up to a billion people every year. And we know it. We know it every year. It's going to happen, and it happens every year. And so this idea that uh, we could stop this virus, a little bit foolish. When we come back, I, I want to talk a little bit about masks, not because it's the end-all, be-all, but just because I think it's indicative of the approach and the quality of the arguments that are being had uh, with respect to all, all aspects of uh, COVID-19 response. More with Alex Berezow, a Ph.D. microbiologist, columnist for USA Today and VP of Scientific Communications at the American Council on Science and Health, right after this. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Back on April 6th of this year. Oh, you know, low those uh, six months ago. Advice to uh, from the WHO. Advice to decision makers on the use of masks for healthy people in community settings. The wide use of masks by healthy people in a community setting is not supported by current evidence and carries uncertainties and critical risks. Medical masks should be reserved for healthcare workers. The use of medical masks in community may create a false sense of security with neglect of other measures such as hand hygiene practices and physical distancing. Quoting here, masks are effective only when used in combination with frequent hand cleaning with alcohol-based hand rub or soap and water. And the WHO acknowledged that most people do not use masks properly. Well, um, in the intervening six months between um, the, uh, those pronouncements from Tony Fauci from the WHO uh, to now, the uh, change in recommendation to mask wearing and in some jurisdictions, uh, sort of uh, 
uh, more mask wearing than time without a mask on your face is really been made without a single peer-reviewed scientific paper to support that cloth masks actually provide any respiratory protection. And uh, I was uh, watching um, Alex Berenson on Tucker Carlson's show yesterday. He referenced a Danish study on masks that was supposed to be uh, uh, published, or at least a uh, an initial unpeer-reviewed version of it, uh, to give some direction, uh, some measurement of mask effectiveness in combating COVID. And uh, it's not being published. There's not, it's not, there's, nobody's heard anything of this big study that uh, Danish researchers were supposedly doing. And so he's wondering what the results may have been. Uh, seems like a legitimate question. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined again. Uh, he's, joined, he's back with us, Alex Berezow, Vice President of Scientific Communications at the American Council on Science and Health. He is a Ph.D. microbiologist and a columnist for USA Today. Alex, I raised the mask issue Again, not because it should be some sort of, you know, everything rises or falls with the mask, although that is sort of what CDC Director uh, Robert Redfield said not so long ago, which was dubious. Um, But because it's it's the approach that we seem to be taking across the board, this we can uh, we can uh, sort of performance art virtue signal our way through COVID-19. So this is a position I've actually changed on. I initially was incredibly skeptical of masks because people wear them in China and Japan quite a bit, and they still have influenza every single year, just like everybody else. And so I thought, okay, this is really not going to work. But as data, there was at least one peer-reviewed study that I'm aware of that did look at uh, mask wearing, and they found that even simple masks, like uh, you know, wearing some cloth on your face, will 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 lower the amount of virus that you shed. And if that's the case, then it's sort of a minor nuisance, right? I mean, nobody really likes wearing a mask, but it's sort of a minor thing. And so, if we can get society back to normal, if we all strap on a cloth mask when we have to walk into a Starbucks or something, then I'm. I'm fine with it. I No, I appreciate that perspective, and I'm not uh, dogmatic about masks either. But the, but the, the problem is the, uh, the, the proponents of masks are, are proponents of all sorts of other measures that prevent society from getting back to normal. I mean, they're, they're sort of addicted to a whack-a-mole lockdown policies. And, and just on the mask matter, and I, I, I don't know which study you're referring to. I, I, did, I did see something out of Canada that suggested that, but I don't think it was peer-reviewed. But Maybe I missed something. That's certainly possible. But I do look at CDC data uh, back in September prior to Redfield's last appearance before Congress. And according to their own data, they found essentially no statistical difference between people who uh, got infected who always wore cloth face coverings versus people who got infected and did not always wear cloth uh, and did not wear masks. There was there was. There was just no associate. There was no statistically significant difference between the two groups. And so, you know, again, it challenges the the effectiveness, even if it's effective on the margins. I mean, it's only the margins, but we're but it's being treated and discussed like it's um, the, 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 the the line between life and death. Well, uh, it, it, the, the cloth mask will not prevent you from being infected. So if, if, if the data was looking at uh, people who are always mask wearers versus non-mask wearers and whether or not they got infected. That, that's the wrong thing to look at because uh, the, the cloth mask won't help you at all or won't help you very much. But what the cloth masks are meant to do is that if you're sick 
and you're spreading virus, the cloth mask will reduce the amount that you're spreading to other people. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of like that. <laughs> there was a, a funny cartoon that, that, that showed that like they compared it to, to you know, peeing. They're like, if you're wearing pants and you're peeing, you're not going to pee on somebody else. You're going to, it's going to stay in your pants. And so, uh, it's, I like, kind of like the analogy cause it's true. Uh, wh- whereas, you know, if the guy's not wearing any pants and he pees and you're wearing pants, well, you're still going to get wet. So, um, it's really meant math is meant to protect other people from you well, rather than the other way around. Well, right. But one of the points that's made about the CDC data is, well, it's not surprising because when people are sick, as you say, is they they uh, most people being uh, wanting to act in good faith are want to remove themselves from their family member or their work colleague so as to not get anybody else sick. I mean, if you're feeling sick, then you know it. And and in this time, you think COVID if it's if you're symptomatic. And so you say, OK, well, I'm I don't want to infect my friends, my family, my work colleagues. Yeah, no. And I, and I agree with your overall point, which is we have in, in, in implemented all sorts of public health policies that don't really make any sense. Uh, you know, <laughs> You know, why 25% capacity for a restaurant? Why right. 50% capacity? Why, where are they coming with these numbers? Well, they just invented them. They fabricated them. And, uh, you know, you, you can go to a, a football stadium and, 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 you know, no one can go except, you know, a handful of people. Well, why? Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I agree with you that these, these, these policies are sort of just fabricated on the spot. And we invented them really early in the process without really any, any, uh, study showing one way or another and then we stuck by them uh while the, the virus keeps spreading and you know i mean it, we, there's that that cliche is the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results well that, that's what we're doing right now the virus keeps spreading and so we're just saying well, we're going to keep doing what we're doing and well you know that's why i like the great barrington declaration they're saying well maybe time to try something else he is Alex Berezov, Vice President of Scientific Communications at the uh, American Council of Science and Health, Ph.D. microbiologist and columnist for USA Today. Alex, thanks for being with us again. Appreciate it. Hey, always my pleasure. Thanks, Dan. Take care. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. President Trump in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, rallying his faithful yesterday and uh, making a, a specific appeal, a little bit better than Bill Burr did on Saturday Night Live, specific appeal to suburban women. Suburban women, will you please like me? Please. I saved your damn neighborhood, okay? We saved suburbia. Okay, you may want to soft pedal that a little bit, but uh, one of the things a president can do, in addition to just saying we save suburbia, is talk about the law enforcement piece, public safety, that uh, the federal government will always be a backstop for state and local authorities who want federal support to keep you and your family safe, including in the suburbs. And we've seen it play out in Kenosha and Lancaster and elsewhere. So it's not just big urban centers, as we know. That's maybe a better appeal. I know that doesn't have sort of the theatrics associated with it, but 
it may be more consumable to those that are otherwise disinclined to vote for President Trump because they don't like President Trump or they don't appreciate his personality. I know, but that was partly tongue in cheek and that's fine. And it focuses on him recognizing being a little bit self-effacing and recognizing that, but nonetheless, a bit more specific. In addition to that, both in Pennsylvania as well as in Michigan, after you've had courts rebuke those governors, Wolf and Whitmer, respectively, for the lockdown orders and the hardships that those orders have imposed on working families as those states struggle to recover. This is an opportunity to make that appeal to the economic security, public safety, economic safety that families in the suburbs, many suburbs, uh, middle income suburbs are rightly concerned about. Uh, The other thing, too, is, I mean, you may even excerpt from some of these uh, confessions of secret suburban moms that are voting for Trump that don't want their name disclosed because of the potential blowback. This from uh, Arizona. I'm a 50 year old married woman. My husband and I have two children aged 13 and 15. I have a bachelor's degree with two years graduate work. We know small business located in our quaint downtown district. I had been a Republican since my college year, she writes, but had registered undeclared years ago, having lost faith in the Republican Party. I thought they were just as corrupt as the Democrats. Well, That's changed in part because, again, this is about promises kept, even if you don't necessarily like the promise or this one promise isn't as relevant to you as it is to this mom. She writes, as a native Arizonan, I watched as year after year, politician after politician promises to address illegal immigration and the basically non-existent border between Arizona and Mexico. It never happened until Trump, that is. I know some people, even Trump supporters, get dismayed with things Trump says or tweets, she says. I don't. If Trump was exactly wasn't exactly who he is, he wouldn't be where he is and we wouldn't be where we are on the verge of draining the D.C. swamp. So that is my secret uh, Trump supporter story. She tells us I'm a Trump supporter. I'm not a racist. I'm not a homophobe or any other phobe for that matter. I love the USA. I hope and pray Trump wins this November. I wish I could shout it from my rooftop. Maybe I'll get brave and do it, but probably not. And I suspect that in those states where there are specific promises that were made and promises that were kept, where there is a a recognition of the wide divergence between law and order, as well as between lockdown or open economy between the two candidates, you may have a lot more moms than just that Arizonan who left the Republican Party only to come back to Trump. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. On my uh, show yesterday, had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. He is one of the uh, charter members of the Great Barrington Declaration. He's a medical doctor, economist at Stanford University. He, along with Martin Kaldor from Harvard and Sinetra Gupta from Oxford, leading the charge for this great Barrington Declaration that seeks to bring rationality back to public health policy as it pertains to COVID-19. Dr. Jay, first of all, talking about the global consequences of lockdowns. The thing I like about uh, Bhattacharya is um, he speaks about these policies in moral terms. In the last, they say, 20-some years, through the functioning of the world economy, lifted a billion people out of poverty. 
that is threatened to be reversed in, in, in only a very, very short amount of time, I think, as a consequence of these lockdowns that not just our country, but uh, countries around the world have adopted. But our country, because of the central role we play in the world economy, has a huge responsibility to maintaining that. Uh, we've established a World Trade Organization, to, and, and countries, you know, poor countries around the world have reorganized their economies around the trade structures and other structures that sustain uh, you know, that, that have been encouraged by our, our policies and, uh, and others. To reverse that overnight as a consequence of lockdown, uh, as, you, as you've heard, is utterly devastating. The World Health Organization actually estimated that, uh, that I think it's the UN, estimated that 130 million people worldwide this year will be at risk of starvation, additional people because of the lockdowns, 100 million people. And isn't it ironic, the World Food Program, which is a UN program, was just conferred the Nobel Prize. Now, you can argue the merits of that because it isn't necessarily the most efficient deliverer of, of goods to the needy. However, at the same time, you're conferring the World Food Program, the Nobel Prize, for trying to get resources from the first world to the developing world. You're shutting down the first world to prevent the first world from getting resources to the developing world. Explain that to me. This is why Dr. David Nabarro, who we discussed yesterday, the WHO special envoy on COVID-19, says, stop using lockdown policies. And it's just not even a conversation here, which is remarkable. And Bhattacharya goes straight at the mantra of the lockdown and bust artists in this country, which is, you know, anything to save one life. The other side of this argument is pro-lockdown that had it too easy to say, look, if you can just save one life, we should do the lockdown. The problem is it's much more morally complicated. And it's lives on both sides. The question is whose lives count? And I'd say we should not be valuing the lives on the, uh, the, the damage by the lockdown is zero, which is essentially what we've been doing. There's another aspect of the moral argument that has to do with who pays the cost of the lockdown domestically. The lockdown for people who are younger, let's say younger than 50, on net is incredibly damaging. So, for instance, one in four young adults in the United States in June seriously considered suicide. I mean, that's a consequence of the isolation created by it and the depression that's created by it, the anxiety, depression. I think that is all directly a consequence of the lockdown. At the same time, those young adults face very little risk for mortality from COVID. In effect, children face no risk, yet we basically barred the schoolhouse doors to children across the country, despite an acknowledged right to education. For We have an obligation as adults to provide the education to our children. We're not doing it. And when people talk about the lingering effects of COVID for the infected, sir, that's a real thing, and that's uh, worthy of consideration. What about the lingering effects from lockdown, people that don't commit suicide but go into depressive states for extended periods of time, their mental health is compromised? That, that's a lingering thing, too. Bhattacharya said something else, too, that was interesting with respect to those who are sort of knee-jerk pro-lockdown, even in spite of the manifest weight of the evidence that has been compiled in real time. You just can't get them to have the discussion of trade-offs, which we know is attendant to every decision that every person makes. Opportunity costs, trade-offs, this for that. I've now been in several debates with people who are pro-lockdown. And it's very difficult to get them to acknowledge the cost of the lockdown. Uh, so I just, I, I think um, at this point, I think uh, it, it is very, very important that uh, these views, which I, I, I have to stress to your listeners, these are absolutely mainstream views. These are not fringe views. These are these were part of actually the basic plan for how to deal with pandemics like this before COVID, which were basically violated. These these deserve a public, a, a reasoned public hearing. 
you know, if, if we're wrong, then fine, show us the evidence. But I think what I don't think we're wrong. I think uh, the evidence is now overwhelming. Yeah, indeed it is. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Jay Richards, executive editor of The Stream, assistant research professor in the School of Business and Economics at the Catholic University of America, senior fellow at the Discovery Institute. Uh, he has a new book with his co-author, Douglas Axe, called The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. That's uh, released this week. And so we, we welcome now Jay Richards. Jay, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, how do you react to the combination of the remarkable statement that Dr. David Nabarro from the World Health Organization yep. made the other day and then uh, Dr. Bhattacharya's and, and, and frankly, his colleagues, too, that have signed on to the Great Barrington mm-hmm. Declaration uh, on uh, lockdown policies, their arguments? They're exactly right. I mean, uh, Doug Axe and I, and actually we have a third co-author, William Briggs, who's a statistician. The reason we started working on this book way back in March was that we were convinced of what exactly you said, that people were not weighing the costs and benefits of this accurately. We were treating it as if, well, as Dr. Anthony Fauci said, it's sort of inconvenient on one side to lock down, but of course there's lives to be saved on the other. No, that was always a misconception because of course any response is gonna have a cost and it can have a cost in lives. We're now seeing that, unfortunately, is that, yeah, that terrific summary that you just played from Jay Bhattacharya illustrated. And that's, that's what our book is about. It sort of lays out the scientific case and the data for this. And I, I think at this point, it really is overwhelming. We could never have imagined that the World Health Organization special envoy for COVID-19 would now come out and actually say exactly the same thing. But as you probably know, that was the original World Health Organization's position. One year ago, they did a major report, surveyed over 200 scientific studies and said, look, lockdowns of the entire population, first of all, they don't work. There's no reason to think that that's going to prevent viral outbreaks from suddenly stopping. Moreover, the main thing they do is they devastate economies and especially the people that are right on the edge. The World Health Organization knew that. They changed their minds in the frenzy of the the pandemic panic in, in the spring. Uh, and now they're just actually returning to their original position. But uh, it, because the media is not re- really reporting this, I don't think Joe Biden's even gotten the word yet. And so your perspective from sort of analyzing the data and then bumping that up against the decision making, I mean, is there another explanation besides fear and opportunity to grab power? Are those the two dynamics at play here? Is there anything we're missing? Yeah, those are the two, but I think there's also just the basic human incentives. I think it's amazing how much of what has happened you can explain without even assuming that anybody is malicious. So, for instance, the media, though I do think the media overwhelmingly is hostile to President Trump and so tends to just take the opposite position of whatever he's saying that particular moment. Also, there's just a general incentive for media to want to panic us because that's interesting. You know, it's always it was said for decades, uh, if it bleeds, it leads. And that's the reality. Look, if something's terrifying like this, people are going to be interested. And so the media has an overwhelming incentive to keep us whipped up into a frenzy. And if we don't discount that in our consumption of media, we end up getting sucked into it. It's also remarkable how uh, unwilling we are to look at uh, other real-world examples in terms of informing our own decision-making. It's not like we don't have two dozen Western nations who've reopened their schools, many of whom are not uh, abiding any, uh, any, requiring any mass policy. They're not doing all, Mm -hmm. going through all of the redundant precautions that uh, schools that are 
in, in America are going through, those that are, have in-person learning at all. But, I mean, the schools we're talking about right. have in-person learning. And so we just ignore any contrary data to the stated position. As I said with Dr. Bhattacharya yesterday, it just seems like we knee-jerked our way into this, and there's a, a contingent of people who are in positions of authority that are just going to do whatever it takes to justify this, at least through November 3rd. I think that's exactly right. I mean, this is the problem. It's one thing in March or in February when we didn't really know what we were dealing with. I'm inclined to be forgiving of what happened right at the beginning. But we're not in that position anymore. We know a heck of a lot about who is at risk from this bug. We know who is not, school children. The idea that we're still forcing kids to study from home at this late date, it's, it, you've got to look for some kind of other motive. And I think in part it's the election, frankly. I think it's also a lot of politicians that don't want to admit, well, maybe this wasn't the best idea. I've got new evidence. I need to change my mind. It's very hard, I think, for politicians to some unwind themselves after they've make, made a public commitment. Jay Richards, executive editor of The Stream, assistant research professor in the School of Business and Economics at the Catholic University and a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute. The book, The Price of Panic, how the tyranny of experts turned a panic into a catastrophe. Jay Richards, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Just another manic Monday. Wish it was Sunday. That's Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We now turn our attention to the intersection of culture and cash. And uh, nowhere is it more fascinating than the sports world. Uh, So I pose this question. What do Chinese communists and champagne socialists, CEOs and investment fund managers in America have in common? Well, uh, let's explore that question. Starting with Mark Cuban, the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, Mr. Shark Tank. He was on with Megyn Kelly on her podcast the other day. Where Megyn Kelly pressed him uh, on his uh, politics domestically that don't travel well, that don't travel to China. Why would he take money from the Chinese, well, he meaning the NBA, to the tune of ha- half a billion dollars? And um, why uh, is he silent in an era where silence is violence, we're taught? I just told you I'm against human rights violations everywhere, including no, no, no. China. Well, let, let's get specific. Do you condemn the genocide that's going on right now in China? Toward I the condemn Uyghurs? all human rights violations. Why yes. can't you be specific? Yes, because the way proclamations work in this country, the minute you say them anywhere, you're going to use this as a headline. Cuban says this, this, and this. What's then wrong I with that headline? With, Cuban condemns because, ethnic cleansing Because I got to deal with the troll bots then. I got to deal with the troll bots. Now, what's more important to ask is what actions that I think are important to deal with these issues. You don't, you want proclamations, but you're not, when I try to talk about actions, you ignore them and say, I'm evading the question. I no, have I been wanted, told silence is violence. And my question for you okay, is, what I'm telling why you have is you been so silent is, action on, is on this? I'm telling you, action, action is, is change. change. So and I'm telling you about, about this. this. So what would I try to explain it to you, right? I'm working. I've been involved trying to increase the number of slots available for asylum seekers here in the United States. <laughs> uh, I, I love the refrigerator magnet uh, back and forth. Uh, silence is violence. Action is change. Um, asylum seekers. 
what, for the one million Uyghurs in concentration camps in China, according to some estimates, Mark? I mean, get serious. Megyn Kelly persists. Why would the NBA take $500 million plus from a country that is engaging in ethnic cleansing? Why would... So basically, you're saying that no, nobody should do business with China ever. Why don't you just answer my question? No, Megan, uh, I'm just trying to get to the, the root of it. So why would you're the just NBA trying to do put, that? You're the one, you are the one who because said. Because they are a customer. They're, they are a customer of ours. And guess what, Megan? I'm okay with doing business with China. You know, I wish I could solve all the world's problems, Megan. I'm sure you do too. But we can't. And so we have to pick all battles. And while you'd like to get proclamations so you can create a clip that says, look what I got Mark to say, you don't want to deal with the actual action items. You might think silence is violence, but action gets changed. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Victor Davis Hansen uh, makes the point often that uh, when no one wants to deal with the felonies, we focus on the misdemeanors. And so because Mark Cuban's bread gets buttered by turning a blind eye to Chinese communist persecution of their own citizens, he focuses on the, the sort of cheap, woke politics of the left. Things like uh, ending offensive nicknames. Offensive to who? I don't know. Some, I guess. Those who are looking to prosecute misdemeanors. Uh, and that brings us to the Washington football team, formerly known as the Redskins. And this interesting piece at TheAmericanConservative.com by Declan Leary about uh, what actually ended the Redskins nickname uh, just a short seven years after Dan Snyder, the Redskins owner, declared that uh, it shall exist for time immemorial. For more on this, Declan Leary, Collegiate Network Fellow at the American Conservative. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dan. So uh, Mark Cuban and the Chinese communists, and here we have uh, Dan Snyder and uh, corporate America, including not just uh, C-suites, not just those that got headlines like FedEx, but a lot of the uh, investment funds that have sway over uh, decisions that somebody like a Dan Snyder might make. I- explain the backstory there. Sure. So, the of course, there's been a decades-long push for, for the team name to change. Um, it was part of the, the one of the pressures that pushed them out of the Capitol, um, almost 30 years ago now, I guess about 25. Um, But like you said, in 2013, Dan Snyder took a very clear stance. He said they would never change the name. Um, And then you get this turnaround in 2020. Suddenly we have a review announced. They're going to look into it. And then in the blink of an eye, they've decided that the team name can no longer stand. And the narrative, what they've been saying, what's been in all the statements is that you know, our country is in the midst of this great racial reckoning. And after the death of George Floyd, we've opened our eyes to racial injustice and we no longer can tolerate the Redskins name. Um, Obviously, that's not exactly true. This wasn't just a sudden epiphany caused by activists in the streets. Um, It was pressure on the Redskins corporate sponsors by their own um, big money investors. Um, especially FedEx, Nike, and Pepsi are, are the three big ones that we're looking at here. Um, and basically what it comes down to is big money saw the opportunity to, to pressure the, the erasure of the name. Um, they took it, and Snyder saw no, no choice faced with the loss of the FedEx sponsorship. And, of course, the Redskins play at FedEx Field, he saw no choice but 
but, to yeah, change but, the name. But as you point out, this isn't coming from the uh, the goodness of uh, these uh, corporate titans, the, the goodness of their corporate hearts. This is uh, big money putting pressure on big money, big money putting pressure on corporate America to put pressure on the uh, the ownership uh, contingent of the Washington football team. Of course. And like I said, um, Nike is one of the big corporate sponsors that we're talking about here. And the irony would be hilarious if it weren't so terrible to tie it back to, to China and the CCP. Nike uses Uyghur slave labor from Chinese labor camps. Right. If we were seriously talking about concerns about justice here, um, then the, the big money would be pressuring Nike to, to use humane labor. But there's a blind eye turned to to the real rights violations and instead the money is used to pressure this sort of woke culture war you uh your your concluding sentence i really enjoy in your piece money talks sure but big money barely whispers and that's what i want to get to the money that uh, isn't being reported on uh, fedex nike those are high profile uh, uh you know well-known brands but these investment funds behind the scenes that barely whisper but uh Uh, to borrow from Teddy Roosevelt, carry a big stick. Yep. Um, So these are are very progressive groups in general. Um, You know, they they sort of have this vague branding of social responsibility, and we only invest in companies that do good things um, without any real definition of what that means. Um, And some of them have, have some pretty questionable connections um, for instance, one of the signatories to this this Redskins letter um, is Domini Impact Investments, um, and Amy Domini, the the founder and chair of that particular fund, is is well connected in progressive donor circles, um, and has been recognized by Bill Clinton actually on behalf of the Clinton Global Initiative for her efforts in sort of transforming the world. Um, so we can't really pretend that this is just an impartial commitment to to justice and social responsibility. There, there's a clear political and, and pretty far left bent in what these uh, what these big funds are doing. Declan Leary, Collegiate Network Fellow at the American Conservative, theamericanconservative.com. Declan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Podcast of the show at danproffshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. As uh, the culture is changing negatively in so many ways, one of the ways it seems to be moving in a positive direction, at least from my perspective, is on the life question. Uh, on the sanctity of human life from conception to natural death, even against the backdrop of the left becoming more rapidly pro-abortion, and even against the backdrop of more states, but states that uh, have lost their bearings because of control by cultural Marxists, uh, when it comes to right to die, death, you know, death with dignity legislation, euthanasia. You know, it's interesting because this is an area on the life issue, on abortion, where pro-lifers have actually built their own castle in a way that conservatives haven't on so many other issues. And they have used all available mediums to advance the flag. Peaceful activism, like the March for Life every year, 
uh, like uh, prayer warriors outside of abortion clinics. Campaign involvement, both as volunteers as well as people providing resources based on a candidate's position on the life issue, like, say, Susan B. Anthony List does. But also, and importantly, in entertainment. Think of Abby Johnson's unplanned book that was optioned into a movie. Think of think of the Gosnell movie. Think of the uh, guerrilla journalism efforts of David Daleiden and company with respect to Planned Parenthood and broadcasting those conversations with Planned Parenthood officials. And uh, most recently, I mentioned him on this show too, Ben Watson, the retired uh, Super Bowl champion tight end, he and his wife just produced a, a pro-life movie called Divided Hearts of America, which is very good. Interviews across the range, including with uh, across the range of opinion, including with two New York state legislators who were actually pro-abortion and were behind, you know, that radical pro-abortion law, that uh, pro-abortion legislation that Andrew Cuomo signed into law, essentially effectively infanticide, legalizing infanticide. So you heard you heard the perspective side by side in his Divided Hearts of America, which is on Salem now. So you can check it out there. You can stream it there. And so I wonder if you had more movement on the Supreme Court after Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation in a second term of Donald Trump. And you perhaps have another retirement or two. Maybe Breyer retires. There's been rumors about that. You go to a court that is seven two, sort of philosophically on the issue of life and then the challenges to get a case that's on point to actually overturn Roe and overturn Roe, meaning what would happen, return to the states. And then you would have very different legal regimes at the state level, state by state. Uh, Illinois would be very different than all of our neighboring states, really. So that's that's what's at stake here, too. It's Amy Coney Barrett's nomination. And it's not just on the life issue, but it includes the life issue. And one of the worst decisions in Supreme Court history, one of the the grossest examples of uh, erroneous jurisprudence, perhaps since Dred Scott in this country. But it's worth thinking about a second term with President Trump because of where this could go. And it's not just doing this through the court because you can't get it through the legislatures because this is sending it back to the legislatures, actually, isn't it? That's what would happen if it happened. Number one. Number two. It's it's being brought to this point because of cultural forces changing hearts and minds on this issue. And it's uh, because of the uh, layered uh, attack by pro-lifers of the issue to advance the cause of the sanctity of life. It's a real interesting case study. And so for more on that, we're pleased to be joined by Danielle D'Souza Gill, uh, yes, she is the daughter of our friend Dinesh D'Souza. She's also the youngest advisory board member of Women for Trump. And she's the author of the recently released The Choice, The Abortion Divide in America. Danielle D'Souza Gill, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So, um, you know, give us your sense as you've watched uh, parts, because uh, who could stomach more than parts, of the last uh, 48 hours of the Co- Amy Coney Bear confirmation hearing of um, how you think she's holding up, uh, how she handled the various senators who queried her on the issue of Roe v. Wade, and uh, and where you think this goes when she's seated. Yeah, I think she's doing a great job. I think the left is really looking for just 
uh, you know, something to, to stick. They're, they're hoping that something sticks. But I think that they know that she is going to be confirmed. And um, I can't see why she wouldn't be. Uh, of course, Roe v. Wade is kind of at the center of their queries. They're trying to make it as though she's anti-healthcare at large. Uh, and I think anyone watching it knows that that's ridiculous. When we come back with Danielle D'Souza-Gill, uh, let's uh, take a look ahead and see what uh, the horizon portends for a case to challenge Casey or Roe. We'll uh, do that when uh, we return with Daniel D'Souza again. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Danielle D'Souza-Gill talking about uh, the life issue. And before the break, we're talking about Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation to the court, to the high court, and thinking about uh, this prospectively, being a little forward-looking. So Barrett is confirmed. It would technically be a 6-3 court on Roe v. Wade, at least in principle. And then uh, w- w- what's your horizon in terms of uh, a case that would challenge Casey, a case that would challenge Roe? that uh, this court would take up and, and how you think it would go if it stayed if it stayed the same with the addition of Amy Coney Barrett? Yeah, well, I would consider it maybe um, five to four, just in the sense that we can't really rely on Chief Justice Roberts. Um, he's yeah, voted on yeah. pro-choice decisions in the past, so, but we don't actually need him anyways. So uh, I'd consider him swing vote or, or maybe voting on the other side on that. But as far as um, potential cases, I know that uh, Clarence Thomas has already kind of started floating the idea of the racism behind abortion and the discrimination aspect of it. I think that that could definitely come to the forefront. Also, um, laws as far as uh, the health of the mother, I think those have kind of been floated as well. Those could come back. So there are a number of, way- of ways that they could uh, take a case that would revisit this entire issue. Well, right. And, and the science, is, it's interesting. This is taken up uh, by uh, uh, Ben Watson in his recent film, as I just was saying at the outset, Divided Hearts of America. It was also, uh, it was, and it's, he profiles in part the uh, scholarship of Steve Jacobs at the University of Chicago. We had him on the show. This is a while back now. But he did a global survey of biologists. And uh, biologists uh, identify his sample of uh about 5,500 biologists, the sample identified 90% liberal, 83% pro-choice, 63% uh, non-religious, 92% Democrats. 92% Democrats are more than 5,000 biologists. 96% of biologists in academic settings and research settings across the planet, 96% affirmed that a human's life begins at fertilization. And that is just a jar, you know, so in terms of these men and women of science and data, the science and data, well, there's the science and the scientists. And so if we're just supposed to listen to scientists, which is the mantra of the left, then um, I'm not sure how the Democrats defend their position. 
Yeah, absolutely. And in my book, I write about, you know, talking to embryologists and talking to people who you know, actually study this outside of the abortion debate. And I think anytime you step out of the abortion debate and you either look at the DNA or you look at, um, you know, life in the womb, you can see that it is a human life, a unique life, not an appendix, not a polyp, not a body part, but its own life with, with its own body part. And uh, what, what about uh, generational change in terms of attitudes on the issue? Because, uh, you know, cultural uh, mores are so important in terms of influencing politicians and even judges. And it's it, the, the, the research seems to indicate, I don't know if, if you cover this, but that uh, Gen Z, so generation behind the millennials, is um, rebelling against uh, the nihilism of their uh, predecessors and, and is actually a, it seems to be a more pro-life generation coming to the fore. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of people in the time of Roe v. Wade kind of asked questions like, when does life begin? And maybe in the womb there's potential life and we can kind of speculate about this and argued that we should maybe give uh, the fetus the benefit of the doubt and all of that. But all of that's really gone away. I think now you either say, you know, this is a human being, this is a human being just like everyone else, or you say, you know, it's a human being, okay, but I think that it's okay to kill it. And I think that so many young people are seeing this as a human rights issue because they can see that this is obviously a human in the womb. Now, you talked about culture, and I know our culture is extremely divided, so there isn't one social fabric. But I think as far as more and more people coming on the life side, we're definitely seeing that. Yeah, and one of the things, too, is, you know, when you start to... Uh connecting consequences to people's stated positions. You know, they've been uh, socialized mainly through their schooling to uh, be pro-choice. But you start to say, oh, okay, so you're pro... And and especially as science advances, as you were describing, and we know more and more about uh, the uh, nature of life and also the way that life can be manipulated through things like gene therapy. So then you start asking questions like, oh, okay, so you're pro-choice. So uh, if uh, oh, because of advances in science and technology, we could identify the gay gene, the so-called gay gene that uh, may or may not exist. Uh, but if we could and a mom, um, a mother wanted to abort her child because her child was going to be gay, would you support that? And then, and then you get the looking at the shoe tops and no, no, I, I wouldn't support that. What if uh, <laughs> a, a mom uh, did wanted a boy and she got a girl, would you support, a, you know, sex selection abortions? Oh no, no, I, I couldn't support that. What if uh, uh, somebody was going to be born with a disability and we're, we're here, you're here to protect the vulnerable, right? Isn't protect the vulnerable part of the mantra of the left and the social justice war. What if somebody was going to be born with a disability and she wanted to abort just because the child had a disability? Would you support that? No, no, I don't support that. So when you start to connect the real human consequences to this decision, there's a there's some people back off in a big hurry, don't they? Yeah, they do. And it's interesting seeing people like Planned Parenthood really double down. They support sex selective abortion. Uh, They support, you know, women being in an unsafe situation when it comes to having an abortion. And I think we see this from the fact that they object to any kind of uh, laws that Republicans want to put in place. So if Republicans say, you know, we want to ban sex sex selective abortions, Planned Parenthood protests against that. And Democrats then say that that's unconstitutional. 
Or if Republicans say, you know, we need a wide enough hallway to make sure a stretcher can get into this emergency room because otherwise it's going to be dangerous for the woman. They object and they say, no, they don't want that. So I think it really just shows that they really don't care about women's health and they really don't care about uh, sexism when it comes to abortion because to them, all they care about is abortion, that women get more and more abortions. She is Danielle D'Souza Gill, youngest advisory board member of Women for Trump and the author of the recently released The Choice, The Abortion Divide in America. Danielle, thanks for joining us. Good luck with your book. Thanks so much. Listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Uh, not a big fan of network affiliate news. Don't know if you watch it. Probably not, unless you're over the age of 84. Network affiliate news. What's the problem with local news? Not that it's local. That it isn't, really. It's local only in the sense that it provides information without context or consequence to your lives. So to my point, what's the 30-minute newscast? Crack-ups on your local expressways, residential kitchen fires, in a place like Chicago where I live, the murder du jour. Uh, Cross-promotion for network programming, stale sports scores, and stale weather that you get you know, anytime you pick up your phone. And they wonder why people don't watch. No con- no context and particularly no consequence to their lives unless you were in the accident or you know the person who was shot or you <laughs> you had the fire at your home. You're talking about a very small group of people within a metropolitan demographics in the millions, right? That's why it's going the way of the dodo bird, the way of the print newspaper. But uh, what's, uh, every every now and again... Uh, surprises, sometimes even in an entertaining way. And so how about a little uh, comic relief to end this hour? This comes to us from a uh, uh, Kansas station, Kansas Network affiliate. And the um, story is about uh, a bomb scare at the Target store in Wichita. Moments for customers at a Kansas Home Depot. Police responded to reports of a bomb threat at the store in Wichita. A customer alerted employees. A man inside the bathroom said there was a bomb in the building. Police were able to locate the man responsible for those comments. And that man told police he warned other guests to leave the restroom because he was, quote, uh, fixing to blow it up, but had no intention of causing a panic. The man also <laughs> told police others in the room laughed understanding his joke, which I'm just now getting. <laughs> Home Depot says they will not be pressing charges. But I can tell you right now, you asked the producer for me to read that, didn't you? Yeah. Well, nice setup. To Ethan now, please. No. <laughs> Are we going to have to go to a commercial? No, we're going to get it. We're going to get it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, but set one off. <laughs> Clear the area. I'm about to set one off. Now, the interesting thing, too, is that the news anchor just starting to get the joke as she's reading it. 
It's a Ron Burgundy moment, too. It's sort of subordinated to the larger story about the guy who was going to drop a bomb at the in the uh, bathroom at uh, Home Depot, but not in a terroristic sort of way. Well, yes. The Ron Burgundy moment. She just reads whatever is put on that screen and then figures it out after the fact. Uh, that's uh, interesting because uh, I've uh, asked uh, my colleague for my the show I do in Chicago to ask our governor, J.B. Pritzker, Jelly Belly Pritzker. He's a big boy, if you are unfamiliar with him. Uh, I asked him, I asked her to ask him if he says something like, Fat Man is about to drop Little Boy when he uh, goes to the bathroom to uh, take his constitutional. It's about the only thing that Prisker does that's constitutional. This is Dan. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. We uh, went through this yesterday, but uh, portions bear repeating after uh, the first day of senatorial questioning of Amy Coney Barrett for her Supreme Court nomination. Tom Klingenstein's uh, argument for Trump is what I'm referencing. Tom Klingenstein, the board chairman for the Claremont Institute, which uh, for my money is the leading think tank in the country for the propagation of America's founding values. I mean, you have outstanding intellects there like William Vigeli, just to name one. Here's what he essentially laid out in terms of the competing regimes that are on the ballot as represented imperfectly, but directionally by the two candidates for president. Rather like the election of 1860, this election is a contest between two competing regimes or ways of life. Two ways of life that cannot exist peacefully together. One way of life, I'll call it the traditional American way of life, is based on individual rights, the rule of law, and a shared understanding of the common good. This way of life values hard work, self-reliance, volunteerism, patriotism, and so on. In this way of life, there are no hyphenated Americans. We are all just Americans. Colorblindness is our aspiration. The other way of life I call multiculturalism. Others call it identity politics or cultural Marxism or intersectionality. The multicultural movement, which has taken over the Democratic Party, is a revolutionary movement. I do not mean a metaphorical revolution. It's not like a revolution. It is a revolution. An attempt to overthrow the American founding, as President Trump said in his excellent Mount Rushmore speech. Republicans should say the same thing. Republicans everywhere, at every level, and at every opportunity. And thus the choice? As a contest between a man, Trump, who believes America is good, and a man, Biden, who is controlled by a movement that believes America is bad. 
and irredeemably bad, I might add, as Klingenstein essentially said in his remarks. For more on this, against the backdrop of the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation hearing, which I think was indicative of what Klingenstein is referencing, per questions from the Cory Bookers and the Maisie Hiranos of the world, inane questions, per the uh, prosecution of specious claims about Amy Coney Barrett's integrity, they, they were strongly insinuated, uh, as well as about cases before the court, including the Obamacare case. For more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined again by David French, senior editor at The Dispatch, columnist for Time, author of Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation, which is a secession threat is sort of where Klingenstein was going in terms of these two regimes uh, by which we can organize civil society, the choice. David, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So uh, Klingenstein's formulation, what say you? Well, I mean, there's certainly an illiberal left without question. I really question that Joe Biden is a tool of the liberal left. The liberal left would say that they lost the primary, that they don't run things. I think there, we, have a, we have a real problem right now in the country. We have an illiberal left and we have an illiberal right. Those two competing forces, both of them forsake Americans, America's founding values. Both of them default towards a kind of cancel culture. Both have this extremist view of, of you know, their opponents, and they have this fight fire with fire and anything goes mentality about political combat. And it's really ripping at the fabric of our country. And so what we have is this, uh, this extraordinary negative partisanship that is based on the kind of very alarmism you heard from that speak, uh, that this idea that if one side or the other wins or loses an election, that, that this country is over. And the interesting thing is that alarmism, that very exaggeration of the stakes, creates a hysteria in this country. It creates a sense of impending doom that is then used to justify all kinds of excessive actions and all kinds of corrupt actions so long as they're aimed at defeating your opponent. And I think that that's one of the core he's our, he what he, he just articulated he's the problem. Well, uh, OK, well, on the matter of the illiberal left and whether Joe Biden is a has been co-opted by it. I, I mean, have you seen the Biden party platform? Do you want to compare that to uh, the things Joe Biden has said previously throughout his career, even in the not so distant past, even when he was vice president, for that matter, compared to where he is today? You think that Joe Biden is leading that uh, the party in that direction or he's being taken in that direction, even if they would have preferred Bolshevik Bernie. I mean, it seems pretty obvious that Joe Biden is, um, you know, a man who is beholden by where the energy is in his party. Well, I mean, the platform's no question to the left of the 2016 Democratic platform. But the way the stakes were outlined in that speech, the platform is, you know, higher taxes for people making over $400,000 a year. The platform is greater subsidies for, you know, renewable energy. The platform is, uh, a public option. He defeated the Medicare for all. None of that is hating America. <laughs> None of that is. Well, that's the hysteria. Like you can oppose the platform, but then to say he's in the grips of forces that hate America. I mean, it, well, well, you know, come on. Well, well, I mean, there does seem to be a, a real challenge uh, for leftist politicians, including at the highest levels, to denounce what we've seen happen uh, over the summer on America's streets, including some suburban streets, number one. Number two, um, the, the lockdown policies 
with respect to COVID and their insistence on the them persisting, I, I think that is all troubling. I mean, you can call it hating America or you can call it uh, just having a different worldview that's uh, more consistent with, um, oh, I, I, you know, um, the, the tyrannies of the 20th century, at least directionally. Um, the, the, the terminology is less interesting to me than the substance of what's happening. I mean, I, 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 are, you don't think you're underestimating what we've seen on our streets and what they're actually proposing and where the energy is in that party? Well, I, I think a lot of people on the right are underestimating and don't, uh, and, and don't condemn loudly and vociferously enough a lot of the deadly violence we've seen come from the right. We have an illiberal right. We have an illiberal left. And what we're doing right now in this country, I think, and what I'm afraid of on the right, is that we're embracing illiberalism often on the right for the sake of fighting illiberalism on the left. And we have to, re, you know, we have to restore our commitment to our classical liberal values. And, and one of the, you know, <laughs> and frankly, honestly, this alarmism is used to try to justify the support of the most malicious and incompetent, cruel president I've ever seen in my lifetime. That's interesting. I, the the rank order priority in terms of the threats to a peaceful, pluralist America. I mean, did you see them as uh, all equivalents? The rioting on the streets, the spike in crime in black neighborhoods after uh, the uh, the lockdown policies started to be relaxed, according to this Washington Post analysis out this week. Uh, what's happening in uh, neighborhoods where police protection is 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 more needed than other neighborhoods and more desired. Uh, and what that says about uh, the in, in, in connection with, of course, the defund police and now defund police and, and closed prisons movement. Do you see the, those as uh, sort well, of on the police? Uh, do, the police isn't part of the Democratic uh, platform. Well, it's not but part but, of the but, Biden platform. but okay, but um, but but it is, but it's, but it's, it's where the energy is in the Democrat Party, particularly in big cities around the country. Thus, all of these well, initiatives. I, mean, I would say where the energy is in the Democratic Party is behind the guy who won the primary by routing all of the opponents who are to the left of him. So, you know, I think that you're what you're you're talking about is a story that, yeah, I mean, there are, there are far left illiberals. Uh, in the in the Democratic coalition, absolutely, 100% there are, and they should be opposed. But you know, we also have a situation where we had a president who lied to America as death was heading to our shores. We well, have what, what, over 300,000 excess deaths in this country. We are what, in the economic recession. What was what was the lie? We have done worse. He knew in in early February this thing was far worse than the flu, very deadly. He says that it's. He compares it to the flu. He says it's going to go away constantly. We have 15 cases. It's going to go down to zero. That's a flat-out lie. Well, flat-out lie. It, 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 it's indefensible. It's utterly indefensible. Well, he created a scenario with the American people where they felt like this was no big deal, weren't prepared for it. And now we have done worse than every major democracy other than Spain. All right, we need to take a break, but when we come back with the dispatches, David French, we're going to uh, discuss competing assessments of Trump's COVID response. We'll be right back. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
We're back with the Dispatch.com's David French. And before the break, you mentioned uh, Trump lying about and downplaying COVID and uh, characterizing uh, how America is doing versus the rest of the world. And, and, and frankly, the data doesn't really support that statement. But with respect to the early days, Trump shut down travel from China. This is at the end of January. That was in opposition to the scientists and the experts. Number one. Number two. I mean, uh, David, uh, Tony Fauci. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, Bill de Blasio, the public health director in New York City, we're all saying the same things into March, trying to allay fears, trying to suggest that this is, hey, go out, go out, uh, enjoy uh, St. Patrick's Day, uh, come to Chinatown and so on and so forth. There was a lot that uh, people in the highest reaches of government didn't know, all the experts that those people in government didn't know that turned out to be untrue, thus the retrenching and reversing of positions on everything from lockdown policy to mask wearing over the last six months. I mean, to put that all You're on Trump's... To put that all on Trump's doorstep is a little bit disingenuous. I didn't put it all on Trump's doorstep. That's disingenuous to say that I did. I said that he lied, and he did lie. It's on tape. So everybody lied then, or they just were wrong. Yeah, some people were wrong, and some people lied. So Tony Fauci was just wrong, and he lied. If Donald Trump says one thing on tape, and then he says another thing in public, what's the situation? I know what you would say was Obama. But it's fascinating to me that people cannot apply a same standard. I can apply it to him. Look, I, I'm not. A, I, I'm. I criticize uh, President Trump for going with the lockdown policies. I wasn't a fan of that. I think it was jump then look. Uh, uh, so, and people on the uh, some conservatives, maybe you will disagree with me. That's fine. I'm not afraid to criticize the president. I'm not afraid to to deal with his communication style or anything of the sort. But I just think the idea that that he presents a, a commensurate threat to peaceful pluralism, the sort of society you want to live in and I want to live in, to what we're seeing on the left with, you know, Joe Biden, who wasn't particularly um, stout of heart in his prime. I, I mean, I, I just I, I, I don't see how the evidentiary record stands up to that claim. Well, the evidentiary record of where the country is right now is it, we, this is not good. The situation this country is in right now yeah. is dreadful. It's dreadful. And who's at the helm? Who's at the helm? He's, this is a guy who ran on saying, I'm going to stop American carnage. And carnage is worse under Trump. This is a guy who, well, if you look at the record of the advanced democracies in the United States and the world, if you look at the record, the record is abysmal for the United States compared to Germany, to Japan. I mean, you know, it, it, I thought it was make America great again, not make America half as good as Germany. It responds into a pandemic or one tenth as good as Japan. I mean, these, these are just facts. And, well, and, yeah. and so you're you're looking at this ruin, and you're saying, and you're saying four more years. I just am not on board with that. It, was there somebody who opposed the lockdowns uh, that was in a position of authority in the Democrat Party? Somebody who opposed or. So yeah. you were against the lockdowns. Well, I, 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 I was. I mean, I, I gave the two weeks to flatten the curve. And, and then even the when Tony Fauci wanted to extend it to 30 days. OK, fine. But after that, no, this knee jerk lockdown policy, I was against. But my point is to say the policies that Trump advocated uh, based on the recommendations of Burks and Fauci in the early days at the height of the outbreak, not only did he follow their advice, that was supported by everyone on the left as well, they're still supporting those policies, even as the president has retrenched on them and states are beginning to open up and he's encouraging more to open up. But I mean, so so the consequences from the policy choices we made were agreed to across the political spectrum. But yet this is the carnage that you're describing is only Trump's fault. 
I don't understand. I, mean, I did not say only Trump's fault. Well, okay, but 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 nobody nobody disagrees. You're you're saying I didn't say that, but you're focused on Trump. This happened on his watch. Like he's well, solely I'm responsible for Trump it because we have a presidential election in which and Joe Biden and Joe and Joe Biden was took the same position that he did. So what's the difference between the two on this matter? I don't. The question: Did Joe Biden talk to the Chinese leader and then lie to the American public in the weeks before the a pandemic or was arriving? No. Joe, Joe Biden. Joe Biden called Trump a Joe xenophobe Biden, for shutting down shutting down travel. Did Joe Biden preside over one of the most catastrophic testing failures in the Western world, where his own CDC failed at the early effort to be able to contain this through contact tracing? No. I mean, you hold people accountable for this. Almost 300,000 excess deaths in this country, 220,000 from the coronavirus. And, you know, we're talking about fringe people in Minneapolis who want to defund the police. I mean, that, this is this is Minneapolis, a, Seattle, New York, prior. Chicago, Portland, Kansas City. I mean, it, it's it's hardly a it's hardly a couple of uh, of aldermen in Minneapolis. I mean, to talk about minimizing that threat. I mean, come on. That is not but, the that is not Biden, the. Joe Biden directly opposes that and wants to increase funding. So we're talking about the presidential election here. Um, so, yeah, I think the Claremont people are part of the problem in this country, quite frankly. They're justifying an incompetent, cruel, and malicious president. They're some of the people who are the foundation of the illiberalism on the right. Read their material. They're constantly publishing people who would reject the principles of the American founding because of the existential threat from the left. And you're, you're having this... Uh, intellectual challenge to the American founding from the right. I mean, I never thought I'd see a conservative movement that challenged the principles of the American founding, much less well, circle this wagons around somebody so incredibly incompetent as this president. Well, I, I understand the uh, the antipathy to Trump. That's pretty well established. But with respect to the, the intellectuals like, uh, I don't know, like William Vigeli, I mentioned at the outset, what, what exactly is their position in terms of challenging the founding principles of this country? So I'm talking about uh, Patrick. I'm talking about Claremont. Claremont is the home, but yeah, number of you know, it's a number of people. For example, I don't know if you followed the the um, anti David Frankism stuff from last year, where Zorba Mari and others were challenging uh, liberalism itself. Uh, so you know, the Patrick Deneen position against liberalism. Right. Adrian Zermill from Harvard. Uh, Amari from New York Post. The Claremont folks were squarely, uh, were, were squarely publishing um, and, and supporting uh, essay after essay, challenging the principles of, of liberalism itself. And so, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I think the liberal left is a, is a threat. I think the liberal right is a threat. I think Donald Trump gives a huge amount of aid and comfort to the liberal right uh, because of this sort of sense of existential dread about the liberal left. And the funny thing is... Um, you know, Biden won by running against the extremism of his party. He routed the extremists of his party. And mm. and yet, the, you know, and yet uh, the Trump campaign runs as if Bernie won. He, he, right, he routed them and then he selected one as his running mate. I, I don't know what that suggests. Um, in in, in your, your book, Divided We Fall, Secession Threat, How to Restore Our Nation. So restore our nation, first up, elect Joe Biden, then what? <laughs> uh, well, one of the one of the first steps is eliminating this catastrophic thinking that is dominating American politics to the point where we're willing to swallow just unbelievable cruelty and malice in the name of fighting our political opponents. It's destabilizing to the country. I mean, 
you know, just yesterday, Trump retweeted a, a contention and allegation that oh, Barack Obama uh, and Joe Biden killed members of SEAL Team 6. I mean, this, is, this guy is out of control. And when we double down on people who are malicious and cruel and out of control because of catastrophic and often incredibly incorrect judgments about our political opponents, you're making it worse. For example, in the book, there is a social science showing that the more political media people consume, the more wrong they are about their political opponents, believing them to be far more extremists than they really are. Except people listen to this show. I just want that caveat. Uh, David French, I wish we had more time. We'll have you back because it's always a spirited conversation. I appreciate it. David French, (laughs) senior editor at The Dispatch, columnist for Time, author of Divided We Fall, America's Succession Threat, and How to Restore Our Nation. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Take care. Show.com. Welcome back to the show. Following uh, our spirited uh, dialogue with David French, we didn't get to this piece, but let's continue the general topic area. Our friends uh, James O'Keefe and uh, citizen journalists over at Project Veritas are at it again, this time in Colorado. They've uh, got some undercover audio of Chris Jacks, who is a Colorado Democrat operative, part of our revolution in Weld County, Colorado. And he's also on the Colorado Democrat Party's executive committee. Listen to what uh, he has to say. Now, again, you're talking about a state where you've got a close race for U.S. Senate, maybe less of a close race for president. But uh, nonetheless, remarkable, the statements that uh, somebody who is an operative clearly on the Marxist left, but also has a official party post in the state of Hickenlooper. Listen to uh, Mr. Jackson, what he has to say. 2020 is a political revolution. I am going to do everything morally acceptable to win. I will lie, I will cheat, I will steal, because that's morally acceptable in this political environment. This is Chris Jacks from Our Revolution, a radical left 501c4 organization bent on creating a, quote, political revolution in the United States. Jacks represents the Democratic Party here in Colorado. And Jack says a Biden administration will be used to advance his political objectives or else there will be violence. It's going to take a strategic hit against the, the 0.1% that's in charge. Because that's who it is. It's killing, killing random Nazis in the street, random bootlickers. So you want to do some Versailles shit? You want to do some Antifa shit? You really want to change this country that way with violence? There's only one way to do it. you got to get people that are close to billionaires and start just random billionaires start turning up dead. I mean, Bezos at the top of the list. So I do think there needs to be a militant group, and I love Antifa for that reason. I love that there's... You, you always have to have somebody that's willing to hold up the flag and say, no, this is the line in the sand, and we're the ones holding that line. So uh, the audio is a little difficult, but I love Antifa for that. You have to have a militant group. And then that provides space for people who hold exactly the same views to come across as more reasonable than those who are black clad flag wearing thugs beating up reporters like Andy No, as Antifa does. Isn't that interesting? Uh, for more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Mark Mitchell. He's the dean of academic affairs at Patrick Henry College. 
and the author most recently of Power and Purity, The Unholy Marriage That Spawned America's Social Justice Warriors. Mark, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dan. Uh, I uh, appreciate uh, this uh, Colorado Dem operatives uh, definition of morality. It's sort of like uh, Barack Obama's definition of sin. Anything that I do that's against my values. Uh, this is the same thing here. Uh, anything I do that is that I consider moral is moral. And anything I do that I don't consider moral is immoral. There's no outside uh, basis on which to measure. And so lying, cheating and stealing, as he said, is moral in these times. Uh, the ends justify the means in service of the revolution. It should be something that we're all taken aback by. The same kind of language is used by Saul Alinsky in his book. And, and the same kind of revolutionary morality uh, is spoken of by people like uh, uh, Robespierre in the, uh, uh, in the French Revolution, that force, violence, terror are legitimate means by which to achieve the revolutionary end. Uh, and so it is a, a, a reconception of morality. It's morality that is revolutionary and at the end of the day is destructive of everything that we would call civilization. It's destructive of society and, and maybe the long-term hope in a way is that revolutions tend to, tend to become so destructive that they eat their own. It's hard to imagine how it can go any other way, but that's the historical trajectory. Well, so uh, does that mean that you don't take the likes of Chris Jack seriously? We shouldn't take them seriously? Oh, we should take it very seriously. Before revolutions burn out, they burn down. That is, they mm. burn down things, and, and then they, they can't continue the destruction infinite, you know, for forever. And so they do eventually burn out and are generally replaced by a kind of a tyrannical regime that is brought to life by a kind of demand for stability and, and order that they have undermined and destroyed. They can do a tremendous amount of damage. And our American Republic, I think, in many respects, is on a, a knife edge. We're, we're increasingly having people on both sides of the political divide use the word of revolution. Uh, people on the left and right are saying that if the uh, uh, election doesn't go their way, you can expect civil war, you can expect violence. That civil war word or term is being used by both sides. Uh, it's hard to imagine how we get through this season unscathed. I want to pick it up there when we come back, because I want you to give uh, a threat assessment uh, the same way I asked that of uh, David French in our conversation before you joined us. More with Mark Mitchell, Dean of Academic Affairs at Patrick Henry College, author of Power and Purity, The Unholy Marriage That Spawned America's Social Justice Warriors. We'll be right back. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. I'm going to go back to uh, a clip from Tom Klingenstein, Claremont Institute board chairman. You played uh, some of his clips, and we talked about that with David French from The Dispatch, and David French, not a fan. He suggests that uh, Klingenstein and the Claremont Institute folks represent if not to the illiberal right, then cover for the illiberal right. I am not in agreement with David French on that. I want to get uh, Mark Mitchell's opinion on what Klingenstein had to say in part in his uh, case for Trump, effectively, the speech that uh, has been picked up now that we've been discussing for the last couple of days, uh, picked up and being widely discussed, at least in conservative circles. Uh, this is Klingenstein 
on Trump. No President Trump has many faults. I myself sometimes cringe listening to him. Sometimes he is his own worst enemy. He is a braggart, often misinformed, petty, sometimes even vengeful, and more. And yet, we are very lucky to have him. I am almost prepared to say that having him is providential. How else to explain that we find ourselves with this most unusual, most unpresidential man who has just the attributes most needed for this moment? At any other time, he might well have been a bad president. But in these times, these revolutionary times, he is the best president we could have had. He has the indispensable attribute of a leader, courage. As a leader must, he goes where others are afraid to go. And he has common sense, which means he generally wants to go to the right place. Mark Mitchell, Dean of Academic Affairs at Patrick Henry College, author most recently of Power and Purity, the Unholy Marriage that Spawned America's Social Justice Warriors, it rejoins us. And Mark, your assessment of what uh, Tom Klingenstein had to say in his assessment of President Trump. Yeah, I listened to his entire talk yesterday. I guess I'm a little less enthusiastic about this is God's man for this time in history. I think in some respects he's right in that the, that there is a potential kind of revolutionary moment here. Is Trump the best man imaginable? I have a hard time agreeing with that. Is he what we have right now in terms of plausible alternatives? Yeah. I think that the Democratic Party has been in many respects hijacked by the radical left. And I'm not convinced that Joe Biden is a kind of of hard leftist. I don't think he is fully aware of what has been unleashed and what he is sort of been taken by. And the alternative then is Trump. And so I don't think a person needs to be as bully for Trump and putting it in terms of kind of providential blessing to say that in this particular moment, it looks like that Trump is best means in the short term by which this revolutionary momentum can be slowed. Yeah, see, I I, I can appreciate that perspective. And I mean, I I, I like David French, who I've mentioned before, we just got done with uh, having a rather uh, spirited conversation, friendly, but spirited. I I just I'm I'm having trouble with his position that uh, essentially the threats from the illiberal left are the same as the threats from the illiberal right. And the way that we walk ourselves back from this uh, moment of potential fracture is by first electing Joe Biden. I I, I just I I can't reconcile that. I think that's an ill-advised position. If for no other other reason, it's it's at least an even bet whether or not Joe Biden will survive a term in office, which means you need to think in terms of Kamala Harris. And she seems to be far more open and far more directly and explicitly connected to the kind of revolutionary rhetoric and agenda that that should send chills up all of our spines. And so there's a kind of pragmatic approach here that, that I find myself taking, that in the short term, it looks like for this election, Trump is the best that we've got. I do think that conservatives need to start doing some serious work about thinking what a post-Trump conservatism looks like. Uh, and, and we need to start 
thinking in terms of the long game. Um, we've got a short-term sort of agenda, I guess, that is, if, if it's to, to elect Trump, fine. But what's the long-term? Because one of the things we've been seeing in recent years is a kind of fracturing and fragmenting of, of our basic institutions uh, and, a, and a dramatic decline in trust in our institutions. Both left and right are talking uh, about uh, if, uh, the, if, if the wrong side wins, this is an indication of the illegitimacy of the electoral process. Well, Trump right. has said such yeah. a thing, and so has Biden. And and what this does is casts a huge doubt on a basic institution. It's one thing to criticize an opponent for the way he thinks and the and the and the positions he holds or his in, his integrity or whatever. But if we are uh, just going after basic institutions and saying they're illegitimate, if you burn down the institution, what do you have left? Well, and this is a really serious problem, and this is part of the agenda of, of the radical left and, and any kind of revolutionary mo- movement. We need to be careful that we don't take that up on the right as well. Yeah, and, and, but the frustration, I think, on the right, since it's the left that controls all of those institutions yeah. you're referencing, is that uh, there's just never a reckoning for bad actors. And you see it manifest itself uh, most notably, of course, pend- the Durham report pending. Uh, with the uh, Russian collusion investigation that persisted for three and a half years without basis. And as it turns out, seemingly mostly as a projection onto Trump, the things that uh, the left was doing and people are understandably uh, exasperated with the institutions they're supposed to place their faith in that turn out to be gaming the system for their political benefits. Yeah. And I think this is exactly the concern. That is, there's there's a legitimate worry that the institutions have not done what they uh, ought to do. That They're they corrupt. have, have yeah. And, yeah. And so so then what's the answer? Right. And if people on the right are saying burn it down, um, that, that that's that's the revolutionary um, uh, disposition that, that that we should be concerned about. And so how do we, and this is really the, the agenda that ha- we have to think about, how do we um, reform these institutions? How do we reclaim the institutions that we've inherited and, and strengthen them and revitalize them um, without destroying them? And this strikes me as if we're going to talk in terms of a kind of medium and long-term agenda for the right, we've got to be thinking in these terms. He is Mark Mitchell, Dean of Academic Affairs at Patrick Henry College, author of Power and Purity, The Unholy Marriage That Spawned America's Social Justice Warriors. Mark Mitchell, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dan. Take care. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show as we close out uh, our Wednesday program, going back to the Hunter Biden story, which we let off the show with in part. Facebook limiting the distribution of the New York Post story about Hunter Biden and an executive at Burisma, where he was employed at the time, making upwards of 50 grand a month. Email that uh, was recovered from a computer from a store in Delaware that had a Bo Biden Foundation sticker on it. 
Now, again, chain of custody, who is the actual owner, those things have been verified. Facebook limiting the distribution of the story in the New York Post, saying that it will uh, rely on its fact-checking partners to determine the story's legitimacy, but until then is taking steps to tamp down on its spread. Hmm. It's remarkable. And it goes to this piece by Sean Spicer, the former press secretary, of course, at Breitbart. The family ties between the elite and the establishment press, even more specifically between the political ruling class, those office holders and the press that does their bidding and big tech companies you can fold in there as well. I mean, how many Obama era apparatchiks wound up at places like Facebook and other big tech companies? Robert Gibbs, his campaign spokesman, went to Facebook. Just to give you one example, here's the thing. And and I know this from Chicago. Invariably, the Chicago Press Corps, which is just one of the outposts of the D.C. Press Corps, Eastern Seaboard Press Corps. When you have somebody in the press uh, leave to work in public policy or politics, invariably, like nine out of 10 times, which is consistent with their voting records, they go work for a Democrat politician they were covering. No conflict of interest there. As uh, Spicer writes, the media frequently calls out conflicts of interest with respect to politicians, as well as politicians, families and personal friends. I mean, unless you're Biden or Clinton, then they don't. However, they certainly ignore the giant revolving door that exists within their circles. A perfect illustration of do as I say, not as I do, writes Spicer. Sure. Well, they also do a nice job of covering for one another. Spicer goes on to give some concrete examples. We're supposed to think it's cute when CNN's Chris Cuomo has his brother, New York Democrat Governor Andrew Cuomo, on his weeknight show. The relationship between the brothers undoubtedly influences the network's coverage of Governor Cuomo and the crisis. Oh, really? No kidding. Although it's hard to get more glowing in their coverage of Andrew, even with his brother doing it. But talking about what I was talking about at a local level in D.C., Spicer notes, NBC senior political analyst Jonathan Allen left Politico to work for DNC chairwoman and congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Then he went back to Politico. No conflicts. Former MSNBC host Chris Matthews worked for President Jimmy Carter, chief of staff to House Speaker Tip O'Neill. Jake Tapper worked for Democrat congresswoman Marjorie Mezvinsky, who now happens to be Chelsea Clinton's mother-in-law as well as Handgun Control, Inc., gun banners. Obviously, Stephanopoulos worked for Clinton. Chuck Todd worked for the 92 presidential campaign of Democrat senator from Iowa, Tom Harkin. Stop and think about this for a minute, writes Spicer. The very people who are covering the politics of the day have partisan background. Some are more transparent than others, but they're the first people to point out the lack of disclosure and transparency among people in public office with whom they disagree. And that's fine, they should. Yet when it comes to their own lives, they look the other way. Now, think about that as informing the coverage that you consume and uh, that so many in your friend circle, your circles of influence consume that give them a stilted view of what's actually happening and at whose hands it's happening. Thanks for joining us on another installment of the Dan Prof Show. Please join us again for a competing town hall evening, which should have been a debate. Competing town halls. Biden on ABC, Trump on NBC. Thursday. This is the Dan Proft Show.